1: On Nick Cater's battleground. As former Prime Minister Scott Morrison apologises for his extraordinary captain's calls, we ask if the response to the COVID-19 pandemic by state as well as federal governments could be the greatest public policy failure of the century. I'll be considering that weighty question with the IPA's John Roskam. Also, Amanda Stoker will join us to discuss our energy reliance on China, the Saudi Arabia of solar panels, Hello, I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre and the presenter of this weekly show on ADH TV, the home of robust opinions, guaranteed 100% woke free or your money back. What money, you ask? Well, none actually, because ADH TV is free to watch by typing adh.tv into your browser or better still by downloading the ADH app on your smartphone or smart TV. Let's start, however, with the ticking off we were given last week by Communist China's ambassador to Australia. Ambassador Zhao Chan says that the tension between Taiwan and China is all our fault. He told the National Press Club that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan violates international rules and is a threat to peace and security in the region. It gravely undermines peace and stability across the Taiwan Street,
0: and sends a seriously wrong signal to the separatist forces for the so-called Taiwan independence. And it is the U.S. side that should and must take full responsibility for the escalation of tensions in the Taiwan Strait. China is compelled to take countermeasures to safeguard its national sovereignty
1: and territorial integrity, which is legitimate and justified. Ambassador Zhao's allegation is rich, to say the least. He speaks of a regime that has militarised the South China Sea, occupied Hong Kong, imprisoned Australian citizens without rights, waged cyber warfare against Australia, broken the international trade rules by banning Australian imports, and stolen intellectual property for our businesses and universities. Even as he spoke, the People's Liberation Army was staging a deadly fireworks display off Taiwan's coast with live ballistic missiles. But if we delve into the history, we have to admit Ambassador Zhao has a point when it comes to US and Australian policy to China. Fifty years ago, this December, Gough Whitlam's government established diplomatic relations with Beijing and gave away Taiwan's right to exist as a sovereign state in the process. The communique establishing the agreement read, The Australian government recognises the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China acknowledges the position of the Chinese government that Taiwan is a province of the People's Republic of China and has decided to remove its official representation from Taiwan before January 25, 1973. So, when Ambassador Zhao pushed back last week against a journalist who asked about the prospect of an invasion of Taiwan by Communist China, he was technically correct. Um, I'd rather not use the word uh, invasion when we talk about
0: China and Taiwan. Uh, uh, Taiwan is different from um, any other uh, scenario or situation. Taiwan is not an independent state. It's not an independent state. Taiwan is a province of the People's Republic of China. The status of Taiwan is in the, in the Cairo declaration, is in the uh, post-Taiyan uh, pro-declaration, is in the UN resolutions, it's in the uh, bilateral documents between China and Australia, Taiwan is a province of China. And-
1: yes, Taiwan is a province of China under the One China policy that Whitlam government adopted in December 1972. Whitlam told Parliament, we initiated the process of recognising the People's Republic of China in essence towards removing our China embassy from Taipei to, Be- to Peking, the capital of China, of which Taiwan is a province. Well, Whitlam wasn't alone in signing up to the One China policy. Ten months earlier, President Richard Nixon made his famous visit to Beijing, where he agreed to end the United States' official recognition of Taiwan and withdraw military forces from the island. In a joint communique, the US acknowledged the communist assertion that there is but one China and reaffirmed reaffirmed its, quote, interest in a peaceful settlement of the Taiwan question by the Chinese themselves, close quote. Nixon was heavily criticised for abandoning Taiwan from conservative Republicans. The great conservative commentator William F. Buckley Jr. described Nixon's decision as, quote, a staggering capitulation. He wrote, We have lost irretrievably any remaining sense of a moral mission in the world. Well, much has changed in the last 50 years, but the moral imperative of the free world to defend the sovereignty of the Republic of China, that's to say Taiwan, against the incursion from the People's Republic of China has not weakened. Any hope that a degree of economic freedom in communist China would open the way for other freedoms was dashed when the PLA crushed the peaceful protest in Taiwan, sorry, in Tiananmen Square in 1989. We learned that the new communists are no different from the old ones, driven by a desire for command and control and willing to sacrifice the lives of their citizens for the supposed good of the state. Taiwan, on the other hand, has made a glorious journey in the opposite direction for the past 25 years. It's enjoyed an exuberant democracy, free and fair elections, and the Taiwanese people are free to live their lives as they wish. Meanwhile, China has achieved enough military might to make it a threat to the global balance of power, And the communists in Beijing won't stop with Taiwan as they seek to enlarge their sphere of influence in the Pacific. Few Australians will have any doubts which side we're on in that conflict. China's threats against Taiwan threaten our freedom and the liberal balance of power Australians have fought so hard to achieve. It's time to stop mincing our words and accept that Australia can still be partners with China and must be a loyal friend of an independent, free, and democratic nation of Taiwan. Well, joining me in the Sydney studio for our regular weekly chat is former Queensland Senator and Assistant Attorney General Amanda Stoker. Amanda is a distinguished fellow and valued colleague at the Menzies Research Centre and a columnist with the Australian Financial View. Uh, Amanda, to uh, a question of international law first, the the wording of the 1972 agreement establishing diplomatic relations with China by Australia seems to be pretty cut and dried. Effectively, it declares Taiwan to be a province of China with no right to self-determination. Fifty years on, are we obliged to stand by that treaty or can we do what our conscience compels us to do and put our support behind an independent Taiwan?
2: The thing about international treaties is that they represent the voluntary interaction of sovereign nations. Australia is entitled then to change its position at any time it wishes to. The question is whether or not it has the courage to make a clear and strong stand of that kind. People tend to forget that it was during that Whitlam era that there uh, really was a Uh, closening of the ties with China, that had an economic bent, but under the Whitlam years it also had a very ideological bent. And we're only now beginning to see the fruit of the decisions that were made during that time.
1: I think you're right. I mean, the fact that that decision was made within just three weeks of coming to office shows they were very, very keen to do it. A bit different now though, I mean, amid the rising tension in the Taiwan Strait, I've been very relieved to see Labor stand its ground towards China. Now, you no doubt had your differences with uh, Penny Wong in the Senate in the cut and thrust of domestic politics, but as Foreign Minister she doesn't seem to have put a foot wrong. Praise where praise is due perhaps?
2: Look, I think that's right and I'm pleased to see um, a more robustness than I perhaps expected from this Foreign Minister. Um, However, it is the long game that matters um, and the reasons for which decisions are being taken that matters. Um, Australians, I think quite rightly, would be up in arms uh, were different decisions to be taken, particularly at this critical time for Australia. We don't know, however, what the long-term plan for Australia's diplomatic relations is. We don't know what Foreign Minister Wong has in mind from a holistic perspective about Australia's place in the world. It'll be good to find out more about that.
1: On energy policy, Amanda, I'm not sure that we've really taken in the magnitude of the investment in wind and solar that we're going to need to to make to meet Labor's 43% target by 2030. And meet it we must, since it's now been locked into law. According to the Australian energy market operator, we're going to have to triple the amount of grid-scale wind and solar in just eight years. Plus we're going to have to more than double the amount of rooftop solar in the same period and that's only the beginning. Where are the millions of solar panels going to come from that we need? Indeed the wind turbine and indeed the wind turbines. Could it be the People's Republic of China by any chance?
2: Well it overwhelmingly will be. China's dominance of the solar panel um, and the infrastructure to support solar panels um, market is near absolute. Uh, Every single one of the components is overwhelmingly manufactured, produced, designed and, and the like in China. And what that means is that we will have one of our most critical resources, and that is our ability to produce energy for itself, overwhelmingly dependent upon a nation whose interests don't always align with ours. We've talked a lot as a nation over the last couple of years about sovereign risk Um, and how to manage our ability as a nation to um, support itself in the event of things like supply chain disruptions, uh, dare I say, to pandemic or even conflict. To have Australia's energy security beholden to a country um, who is not always a, a fair and reasonable trading partner, And with it, to be dependent upon the support for those technologies um, is, I think, an extremely risky thing to do. That sovereign um, capacity of Australia needs to be a part of the planning that goes into how we go about developing our energy-producing resources in future. And that's a big part of the reason why nuclear has to be a part of the story.
1: Yeah, and I think... This is what worries me, Amanda. I mean, we always talk about oil, obviously, petroleum, when we're talking about energy security. But this is a very, you point out, very real security risk. And it just adds to my nervousness that the uh, the energy minister and indeed the, the entire Albanese government hasn't really looked at the detail and paid much attention to how they're actually going to achieve this target.
2: And it links very well with the matters you raise around um, foreign policy. It's, it's one thing to be saying the right things in the moment now, but if you're not taking the strategic decisions around energy, around supply chains, around the production of those things with which Australia cannot do without, then you're not really serious about equipping Australia to be robust when it comes to its relationship with others in the world.
1: Well, I think you and I would agree that uh, at the very least that Scott Morrison, the former Prime Minister, has a bit of explaining to do after the revelation that he took over a bunch of key government ministries without telling the public, the Parliament or even his own Cabinet. I'm loathe to pass judgement on any leader in, ki- in hindsight because COVID-19 threw up exceptional challenges that required big de- decisions to be made on the run. Uh, even on what we know, however, I think that centralising authority as Prime Minister Morrison seems to have done creates a dangerous precedent and almost inevitably results in worse public policy because decisions are arrived at uh, without going through the normal to and fro around the cabinet table. Am I being unfair?
2: No, I think as institutional conservatives, um, it's really important that we go back to first principles and understand why we have things like cabinet government. Um, The the simple principle that says two brains are better than one, uh, 20 brains are better than one, um, is part of what makes cabinets work. Um, To centralise too much power, too much authority and um, too much of the assumption that one person knows best is to deprive a nation of the range of talents in a cabinet. It's also... A bit of a troubling um, step if it were to become a pattern for public accountability. And so while um, the explanations that have been offered uh, by the former Prime Minister to date wash in relation to aspects of COVID management, um, in some of them it seems a little bit of a stretch. And so while I'm happy to have Um, him do his own explanations. But as far as the institution goes, it is really important that people um, inside and outside government understand how critical it is that the design of our democracy is lived out in practice.
1: Yeah. And on top of that, I'm struggling to find a reasonable explanation for why this whole business should be kept secret. I mean, the public deserves to know who's calling the shots, don't they? They... To do this behind closed doors strikes me as a grave political mistake that can only undermine trust in politicians.
2: I think that's the heart of where it fails the pub test. There's no obvious reason why this should be secret. Um, not from the Australian public and certainly not from the ministers with whom um, he ultimately ended up having a shared responsibility for a portfolio. So um Sunlight and transparency is, I think, the marker of whether or not you're doing things right. If you're prepared to share it with the public on a a day-to-day basis, that's a pretty good sign that what you're doing um, is something that is going to be comfortable for all. During that COVID period, Australians, and Victoria is the perfect example, uh, were reasonably comfortable to allow governments to have quite considerable powers. I'm not endorsing that. Um, And I I think it was a mistake. But there was no reason why, if done in the COVID environment, these things needed to be um, kept locked away.
1: Yeah, and this this has been uncovered thanks to some good journalism, I think, in in a book by Jeff Chambers and uh, Simon Benson. But uh, I suspect the more that comes out, what we've just seen from Scott Morrison will be the tip of a very, very murky iceberg of blunders, if you'll excuse the mixed metaphor, Uh, and that the responsibility is wide. So we need to know more. We need inquiries, don't we? I mean, would you support a Royal Commission?
2: I think a Royal Commission just into this is actually a missed opportunity. It would be far better, I think, to open up the scope of that, to better understand um, what governments were doing at state and federal levels, um, using what powers and whether or not there were um, overreaches of a whole range of different kinds during the COVID era. Um, This could be a part of it, but I think that's really where the opportunity to learn lessons lies. Um, And if we can have an expanded scope, I think it'll provide something that provides a useful roadmap for protecting Australians' trust in politicians, in governments, in parliaments long into the future. I think we need that.
1: Amanda, thanks for your contribution again this evening. Thank you. That was Amanda Stoker, a distinguished fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. And if you'd like to keep up with Amanda's contributions in the Australian Financial Review and elsewhere, why not sign up to the Menzies Research Centre's weekly newsletter, The Water Cooler? Just Google Menzies Research Centre uh, in, your, in your browser or drop me a note at nick cater at adh.tv, and I'll be very happy to add you to our mailing list. Well, Scott Morrison has some explaining to do. His decision to take charge of six government ministries without telling the public, the parliament or even his own cabinet is the kind of captain's call that could sink the Titanic. Scott Morrison's apology is welcome, but there's much more we must be told, however painful that may be for Morrison and those around him. His decision to share the health portfolio with Greg Hunt at the start of the the crisis can be justified, arguably. We didn't know much in March 2020. We didn't know, for instance, that the early modelling would be so hopelessly wrong and our health service would have more than enough capacity to cope. But emergency government procedures are dangerous instruments that should be applied for brief periods with utmost caution. When you centralise decision-making and bypass the checks and balances applied by Cabinet and the Parliament, things are bound to end in tears. A small cabal of politicians making decisions easily succumbs to groupthink, tunnel vision and hubris. Policy decisions of enormous consequences are unleashed, untested, without the refining fire of parliamentary debate and media scrutiny. Decisions made in the Prime Minister's office, let's face it, are never subjected to the pub test, which is why normal government process should have resumed within weeks, not years, of the first outbreak. In July 2020, the Menzies Research Centre published a report by the noted economist Henry Ergas, together with Joe Brannigan, It recommended just that. It said emergency power, powers applied by state, territory and federal governments should be revoked by the end of September 2020 at the latest. It was, they wrote, the greatest public policy failure would be to retain the worldview of January to April 2020 when there was still very little information about how the global pandemic would play out. Well, our report fell on deaf ears. The government was too busy to listen and there was nervousness that fulsome policy debate would create contrary messages, as indeed they would, because that's exactly what healthy debate is supposed to do. And so most of the emergency powers remained in place. In some cases, they remain in place to this very day. And the result? Well, it's the policy failure Ergas and Braddigham predicted. In the view of my next guest, we may have witnessed the greatest policy failure of our lifetimes. When the full history is written... As it must be, the error for which Mr Morrison has apologised is likely to be a mere footnote in the omni-shambolic, pan-governmental, technocratic megabungle of the last 30 months. The Morrison revelation should be just the start of the truth-telling, yet neither side of politics in either state or federal parliaments appears to want to want the kind of inquiry we need. The reason is obvious. It's hard to imagine that a single politician or prominent public servant who had a hand in this would emerge unscathed. Some would be able to say that the decisions for which which they're responsible were made in the fog of the pandemic and informed with imperfect information. Fair enough. Some might claim they acted out of abundance of caution to protect the public from a risk that wasn't fully understood. Again, fair enough. But a few, I expect, would be exposed as the power-hungry, arrogant or blundering fools that they were. And that wouldn't be a bad thing. But we must keep this in mind. The aim of the truth-telling should not be to humiliate, scapegoat or punish. It should be to learn from the failures so that we can do better, much better, next time. Well, John Roskam is a senior fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. He's one of the few people in public life who have been prepared to challenge the heavy, candid COVID-19 response from the start. Recently in the Financial Review, he wrote, This time two years ago, it was almost impossible to find anybody against the policy of shutting schools, closing businesses and locking people in their homes to eliminate COVID-19. Both major political parties supported lockdowns, as did the expert and professional class and the mainstream media. To speak out against lockdowns was to be accused of having a reckless disregard for human life or worse. The response to COVID-19, wrote Roskam, would come close to the greatest public policy failure in this country since World War II. As a matter of first principles, a policy that's not allowed to be debated and treated as an article of faith should set the alarm bells ringing for anyone concerned about good policy making. John Roskam joins me now in the ADH's Sydney studio. John, um, as we speak, we're still waiting for an acceptable explanation as to why our former Prime Minister felt it necessary to assume the powers of Health Minister, Finance Minister, Resources Minister and other portfolios uh, in order supposedly to better fight the pandemic. I suspect it will be even harder to explain why he kept it secret, not just from the public, but from his ministers. But when it comes to public policy mistakes, I think what we're seeing here may be just the tip of a very, very murky iceberg. What's your view?
3: I think that's right, Nick. Uh, Your summary just then was an excellent analysis of what, as Australians, we've lived through for two and a half years as a born and bred Melbournean, what I and my family and Melbournians lived through as we suffered under the longest lockdown in the world. And I think there's a point that hasn't really been sufficiently discussed as yet in the early days of these revelations about what the former Prime Minister did, which is that perhaps some of what he did in those first few weeks of the pandemic was justified, although I doubt it. There are many well-established procedures for handing power between ministers. But the point that I don't think has been properly discussed is that when anyone is using massive, arbitrary executive powers like this, then you need more scrutiny, not less. You need more accountability and more public Debate. So for Scott Morrison and those who've defended him in the last few days to say, well, we didn't know uh, what we were dealing with, there was a large level of uncertainty, is all true. But that does not justify doing this in secret. And it goes to the points that you made, Nick, which is there was very little scrutiny about the entire process of the lockdown. There was very little debate about the data upon which... These draconian measures were based, and and now, as shocking as the revelations are of what Scott Morrison has done, at another level, they're simply a continuation of what we have seen for the last two and a half years.
1: Yeah, John. But look, we sometimes whinge about the clumsiness of our federation, about the sort of uh, obstruction in the upper house, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, duplication of efforts, so so on and so forth. But. I think the point is this, isn't it? When in, a, in a system that has uh, a government without those checks and balances, like New Zealand, as we discussed last week with Oliver Hartwich, big mistakes are made. And yet it seems that... And, and I don't want to just focus on the federal government here. I, as I said, as I, when this is, is fully... Everything comes out, as I hope it does, I think that'll be the smallest of the errors, big as it is. But this is what happens, isn't it? If we abandon our normal checks and balances that are inherent in our process.
3: That's exactly right. And that's what the MRC identified in the outstanding report that you referred to earlier that Henry Ergas was was part of. As you said, emergency powers should be exercised for a limited time for clear purposes. And they must be exercised in public. Unfortunately, in the last two and a half years, there was very uh, little pushback against what, as you said, federal and state governments did. But the debate about, certainly from a Victorian perspective, about some of Dan Andrews' outrageous emergency powers did lead to some changes. But when you've got governments operating in secret, and as I said, as outrageous as what Scott Morrison did was, let's also put this into perspective It's no different from what the premiers did. It's no different from, again, my state, uh, the premier of, Dan Andrews, not giving full information, obscuring data, obfuscating the facts, the chief health minister the same. So this idea of cover-up, of secrecy, of not telling your colleagues, of not telling the public, of not telling the parliament, uh, is a continuation of a trend. Again, in Victoria, the parliament was suspended. That suspension was supported by the opposition. It was supported by the media. There were very few faces and there were very few voices who stood up and said, as we did in the Second World War, well, we must continue to debate these things. So uh, it's exactly as you outlined, Nick, uh, emergency powers have to be identified, have to be short-term and have to be public. Mm.
1: Well, look, John, at the risk of stirring up some horrible memories, Don't do it Nick, please. (laughs) I'm going to. I'm going to play you an extract from a conversation we had exactly two years ago this week when Victoria was deep in lockdown and the Menzies Research Centre hosted a a special lockdown forum. Well hello and uh, welcome to a very special and very live edition of, of Water Cooler. We've convened this special water cooler panel forum uh, because of the seriousness of what's happening in Victoria and our concerns about that. Uh, We're appalled at the suspension of democracy there. Uh, The the fact that the emergency powers are in place and have been in place for so long, we don't know for how long, meaning effectively that there's no cabinet, there's no parliament.
3: You're right, Nick, in Victoria and in Melbourne, where I'm speaking to you from at the moment, Uh, we're suffering an 8pm curfew, 5am to 8pm, we're not allowed outside of our house, other than uh, for a number of very limited reasons. It's exactly as you said, Parliament has attempted to be suspended. Um, The rule of law seems to have gone out the window. And something else that we might touch on tonight is, by and large, the lack of media scrutiny and accountability of
1: Well, that shows in part, I think, uh, what professionalism that ADH brings to production when you see what we were doing two years ago at the Menzies Research Centre. But look, we made some important points. John, were the 262 days of your life lost lost to COVID through lockdowns worth it?
3: No, no. This is, again, something else that hasn't been discussed. Uh, As the health professionals, as the politicians, as the media cheered the lockdowns, There was no discussion of the costs. To talk about the costs was to be seen to be irresponsible. We now have not just an economic cost. We have a cost in lives lost, literally. We have a cost in years of education lost. We have a mental health crisis uh, in Victoria and in many other parts of of the country. Um, And we were locked down for reasons uh, that were quite different from what actually happened. We were told we had to be locked down uh, to, remember Nick, flattened mm. the curve. Mm. Mm. Uh, then we were told we had to be locked down uh, to eliminate to eliminate COVID. That didn't happen. Mm. Um, I'm going to argue the Australian public were not just misinformed, we were misled. I'm going to use a stronger term. I think we were deceived. I think there has not been an accounting or a reckoning of, of any of, of this. Um, and as you said earlier, uh, if ever this is going to be reviewed, it shouldn't necessarily be about punishment, but it should be about recognising the damage that has been done. And I would argue it's about some people acknowledging failure, fault and shame for, for what has occurred.
1: One thing we kept asking at the Menzies Research Centre is what are you trying to achieve? Where are you trying to get to? And, you know, sometimes they say flatten the curve, sometimes they say we want to stop people dying unnecessarily. All right, fair enough. Whatever it was, Premier Daniel Andrews said at the end of your sixth and final lockdown, Victorians can be proud of what they've achieved. What exactly did they achieve, however? Let me show you the latest health certificates. Despite imposing the strictest lockdowns in the world outside of Communist China, as far as I can see, more Victorians have died of COVID-19 per head of population than in any other state. 751 deaths per million in Victoria, 559 in New South Wales, 419 in South Australia, the, the, the third most deadly state. Look, is and causation, John, as we keep telling ourselves in research centres, but... It looks like on those figures that lockdowns had little benefit overall and caused, as you say, a lot of pain.
3: Well, that's right, Nick. And we've got exactly the same sort of data uh, from overseas, uh, especially from the United States, where you can compare state by state uh, mask mandates and lockdowns imposed in some states and not imposed in others, and you can compare the data. But it's, as you said, what is concerning is that There's been no accounting for this. There's been no reckoning of this. Uh, The cheerleaders of the Andrew government, the cheerleaders of these draconian policies are now not going to ask what has been achieved because what has been achieved are the figures that you have just read out. Mm. Uh, And that's why it's going to be difficult to uh, accomplish some sort of reckoning for what has occurred because too many people, too many organisations are complicit in what has occurred. Mm.
1: Well, let's put aside for a moment the eye-watering cost of this. We won't even attempt to estimate it. The reduced economic activity and, uh, I think equally as important, the expansion of government bureaucracies, which I suspect will be permanent. The worst of it all to me was the grossed incursion of the state into our private lives. Let's remind ourselves of One of the most egregious examples, the arrest of Victorian mother Zoe Lee Bula on the charge of incitement based on something she'd pasted on social media. What's
2: this about? Can I have an ultrasound? In an hour. Let me
3: finish, and I'll explain. in relation to a Facebook post, in relation to a lockdown protest you put on.
2: The set day. Yeah, and I wasn't breaking any laws by doing you that.
0: You are actually, you are breaking law. That's why I'm arresting you. In relation to how can you arrest children? her? Infrared That's
2: my two children. Can't
0: you just say to her, take the post
1: down? Like, come I mean, on. I'm you happy,
2: happy to delete the post. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Right. Yeah,
1: John, you took up Zoe Lee Bula's case at the IPA. Did she ever get the apology she was owed by the Victorian police?
3: No, Nick. And Zoe's case is still before the courts. Uh, and we should remind people, the action of the Victoria Police against Zoe Beulah, arresting her, handcuffing her in her living room in front of her children and taking her in the morning to a police station for a social media post occurred within weeks of a Black Lives Matter protest operating uh, contrary to government regulations uh, with impunity through the streets of Melbourne. There are so many aspects to what's happened in the last two and a half years. And we've talked about parliamentary scrutiny. We've talked about the role of the media, the role of the police, the role of the authorities in arbitrarily picking and choosing what sort of laws they enforce. I believe often at the behest of their political masters. Um, I have written about the police brutality in some circumstances. Uh, Again, there has to be some sort of reckoning for this uh, and it seems that the only way citizens are going to have their day in court is to take the authorities to court and one of the things that again has happened in Victoria, I can't speak about other states, is the measured decline in respect and authority for the police. Now this is going to be one of the long-term consequences of what we've suffered through the last two and a half years.
1: But why wasn't there absolute, complete outrage, John? And where were our brave, investigative, so-called journalists during all this?
3: Well, Nick, um, I know it happened to you. It happened to me. It happened to our organisations. It happened to our colleagues. Uh, Those who dared to talk about this, who used the term, and I did, the police state, those who said this was massive overreach, um, weren't just ignored by the media We were attacked. Uh, When the IPA uh, put out a a video calling for the end of lockdowns in 2020 and talking about their costs, we were attacked by ABC journalists for being irresponsible, for not understanding the data. Um, I think we understood the data, we understood the evidence much better than they did. And again, if we're talking about responsibility, There was no politician defending Zoe Bueller, no one, no one, no one. Not Labor, not Liberal. I will identify him by name. Craig Kelly Mm. was one of the very few Mm. brave MPs who said this should not happen in Australia. And what happened to people like Craig Kelly and George Christensen, both now not in Parliament? A little while later, George Christensen had a motion passed against him in the House of Representatives, uh, criticising him for asking questions about the efficacy of these policies.
1: It'll be interesting to see what the Lane Review says about this, John, but, but I certainly, from where I was during the election and talking to uh, politicians afterwards, especially some defeated politicians, the amount of backlash against the federal government from COVID was a lot more substantial than they thought. They, apart from the roughly 5% who refused to get vaccinated quite, quite, um, uh, quite reasonably, in my view... Uh, there were a whole lot of other people who were reluctant to get vaccinated but were forced to do so. And I think this could be, it's hard to put a figure on it, but as much as 5%, and an election like the last one, that was probably crucial to the government. What do you think?
3: I, I think that's right. And there's another point to what you raise, Nick, which is those who were most hurt by the lockdowns were not the professional class, not the Zoom class, not the teals. Where I live in the leafy eastern suburbs of Melbourne, for example, it was in what I'm calling the new Australian heartland, which is the labour held seats, the working class seats, the seats of the tradies, the seats of uh, families where both are working, uh, who couldn't afford uh, to be at home, who had lost their job, who'd lost their salaries, um, and that is where the feelings were strongest. We've got an election uh, in the state of Victoria in November. Um, I think it's going to be very hard for the coalition to win that election. They have a huge mountain to climb to win something like 18 out of 88 seats in the parliament. But both sides of the politics are predicting big swings in strong Labor seats where the working class, where real Australians were hardest hit by what occurred.
1: I wish I could point to a sort of ray of sunlight over the the uplands that we could be heading towards on this, John, but I'm struggling at the moment. And I will ask you this question based on a column you wrote recently. What are the dangers that the same kind of oppressive, censorious tactics that we saw uh, to drive the lockdown debate are going to be used in other other spheres, dare I say, climate change, or are they being used already?
3: Well, they're being used already, but before I... Answer that question, Nick. Let me say I am going to be optimistic. I'm going to find rays of sunlight and I'm going to paraphrase George Orwell. Thank you. And, and say the hope is in the proletariat. Yeah. Um, I went on those protest marches in Melbourne when they were legal. The hundreds, hundreds of thousands of normal Australians who are not political, uh, who don't consume Twitter 24 hours a day, spoke from the heart, I spoke to these people. Many of them were recent arrivals in Australia, starting a family, starting a business. Many of them had broken English. They weren't the professional class, but they're people who care much more deeply about their community than I'd argue many Teals voters do. Um, And that then brings brings us to the second point, which is these people are the ones who are going to be hardest hit by the impact Of net zero. Uh, We know the IPA has polled Australians, others have polled Australians. While uh, you ask Australians do you support net zero or policies to mitigate uh, climate change, they'll say yes. But 90% of Australians say they won't spend more than $100 to do it. Uh, Australia is on the verge of a cost of living crisis. We're on the verge of an interest rate housing rate crisis. Uh, And no government I think after having seen what's happened in the last two and a half years, I hope is going to dare to implement the sorts of things they did for COVID to do on climate change or other policies. And we've seen what happens when governments around the world start to do that. There is a public backlash. And both sides of politics have to understand that backlash uh, could sweep over Australia too.
1: but it's, Indeed, John, but I, I, there's one message I'd like to pass on to anybody in the Coalition that's thinking about what direction they head on from here in. I ended up entirely by accident at a, in, uh, in Mossman one Saturday when Clive Palmer was there having a rally and there were, there were, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred people in yellow T-shirts. And the thing was, there were many of our friends amongst them, people who I knew or I talked to, uh, who who would naturally be Liberal Party voters. I think that's what we've got to realise, right?
3: That, that's right. And when you look at the results of the federal election, uh, the votes of the centre-right parties that were not the coalition uh, dramatically increased. Uh, it wasn't enough to swing the election as yet, but people are looking for alternatives, whether it's on the right, whether it's on the left... Both parties have to be aware that the hold they have assumed over uh, most of the electorate is slowly slipping away because of things like we've just seen over the last two and a half years.
1: Well, thank you, John. Not just for this conversation, but the many we shared during the lockdown, often late into the evening, which uh, helped keep me sane and reassure me that I wasn't the only one who thought this whole thing was absolutely crazy and bonkers. Uh, thank you for that, and we look forward to talking to you again on uh, on Battleground. Thank you for your support, Nick. Thank you. And don't forget I'd like to hear your thoughts about today's programme and the conversations, whatever they are, good, bad or indifferent. Just email me at nickcater at adh.tv. That's nickcater at adh.tv. There was a big response last week to my interview with Oliver Hartwich about the state of New Zealand and uh, whether it's heading towards the destination of a failed state. Michael wrote, A wise chief executive will always solicit opposing points of view. Ardern is not wise. She limited her advisers through COVID, so only had a limited point of view. Preferably all views from multiple disciplines should have been in the room and the best arguments and evidence continually picked to underpin policy. Yep, that's how you do good policy, Michael. Uh, Louis said... Two scared right-wingers. I guess that's uh, me and Oliver. Two scared right-wingers intimidated by a strong, intelligent woman leader having a whinge fest. No surprises there. Mm, Thank you, Louis. Uh, Jenny and Andrew say, I thought Germans were supposed to be humourless. This guy was awesome. Pity that he's the only thing funny about this video. The rest is very disturbing and only clarifies something I've known for a long time, that New Zealanders typically vote for personalities not policy. Thomas says, it's easy to tear shreds off New Zealand when you compare it to much larger economies like Germany and even Australia. They're many orders of magnitude greater in capacity, scale and tax base. Well, that, that may be true, uh, Thomas, but um, we should really be posing the question, why doesn't New Zealand have a larger economy? I mean, size doesn't seem to be an issue for countries like Finland or Singapore. On a more positive note, I received an email from a bloke named Jim. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, I just wanted to send this email to thank you for your interview with Oliver Hartwich. I think it is the best interview I've seen about the perilous state of New Zealand. My fear is that we are following Jacinda Ardern's model here in Australia, removing national pride, insisting on feeling a feeling of guilt if you're not Aboriginal and breaking the country up into us and them, which is forcing us to become more tribal and less nationalistic. According to left-leaning politicians who exist in all political parties, the mainstream media and most journalists of today, if you don't agree with policy X, then you must be a homophobe, a racist, a climate denier, etc. Yeah, we've heard all that, haven't we? Uh, Thanks, Jim, for that. And uh, Jim also asks if it's okay to share the link to Battleground with friends. Well, yes, of course, Jim, we'd like you to do that. But in my experience, it's a lot more fun to share it with your enemies. All the best to you, Jim, and thank you very much for your your lovely email. That's all for tonight. I'm Nick Cater. This is Battleground, and if you've been watching, thank you.